It's April 27th, and we are still trying to get our heads around the fact that Prince, beautiful singular Prince, is no longer on this planet. We can't stop thinking or talking about him, so here's part two of our Prince cast. I'm Mukta Mohan from MTV News. You're about to hear a discussion on the women Prince elevated, with writers Meredith Graves, Doreen St. Felix, and Molly Lambert, as well as a conversation about his films with chief film critic Amy Nicholson and pop culture writer Tao Bugby. But first, Tom Garneau shares his memories of working with Prince. He was a recording engineer at Paisley Park from 1989 to 1996, and he worked on hundreds of Prince songs, most of which went unreleased. I would watch him finish the song that was so, you know, it's not polite to even say that, Right, or nearly, I would be embarrassed. <laughs> and he would see them through to completion. He wouldn't self-edit. He wouldn't do anything but follow that muse to its logical conclusion and 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 worry about it later, stash it in the vault, and, you know, maybe it never saw the light again. So I, you know, I kind of liken it, too. It's like, you know, sure, Angela Adams took 10,000 photos, but, you know, the 100 favorite, well, famous ones are the, the deal. And so... He would just, he would take them, you know, he would just see them all the way through. And that, you know, that was an interesting and amazing lesson of not, for anybody to not pre-filter yourself too early or overthink anything while it's happening. Just let it be what it is. And so that's kind of something I really started to work with now because that that was just awe-inspiring in that. So that was pretty Pretty amazing in that point of view. So, so, so yeah, there was there's horrible songs in the vault. We did, we did, you know, <laughs> but they're, they're horrible French masterpieces, you know. <laughs> that was Paisley Park recording engineer Tom Garneau reflecting on his time working with Prince. Prince constantly collaborated with women. He nurtured solo female pop artists like Sheila E. and Shaka Khan, and he elevated women as performers. But Prince's relationship with women was complicated. We have a conversation about the women in his life with Molly Lambert. I always thought it was just sort of a remarkable thing that anybody was even that powerful. Doreen St. Felix. Sometimes his issues with controlling women and making him their muses were kind of like questionable. And Meredith Graves. There's a, there's a, a socially sanctioned and very implicit femininity in that too, talking about your feelings. Prince was famously um, extremely controlling when it came to business, when it came to the nature of the relationship of the artist and literally owning their catalog. Uh, Last night on the Facebook live feed, John Caramonica, critic at the New York Times, was talking about how Prince was able to gain control of all of his master recordings, which is extremely rare. Um, for any recording artist. I think uh, Jill Mapes over at Pitchfork published a really interesting piece a couple hours ago about what it's like to mourn when the artist in question remains such strict, retains such strict control over their back catalog and how it forces people to verbalize their feelings rather than doing what often happened in the wake of David Bowie's passing, which was linking to some obscurantist 
single or specific performance. We, we don't have the luxury or the option of showing people what Prince did or, or forcing them to listen to it. So instead we're left to talk amongst ourselves and that's cool. I think this is Prince's, one, one of gr- Prince's many great, like, very feminine gestures is forcing people, <laughs> forcing people to be intimate and talk. The thing everyone's been posting is one of the performances Prince did at Coachella the year that he played. Radiohead. Yeah, because that's one of the only Prince videos you can find on YouTube. The having things not be on the internet always sort of got spun as like, oh, he's, you know, he's old school. He doesn't understand what, what the benefit is of it being on the internet. But I always thought it was just sort of a remarkable thing that anybody was even that powerful to be able to keep all their material off the internet like that. And out of respect to Prince, we all you know, uh, agreed that that was, if he, if that's what he wanted, then we, we should respect that. It just seems like something that is so hard to do. And, and most artists just give up on trying to do it because it seems impossible to them. But Prince was like, no, I'm going to make sure that I am the person in charge of how, how my material goes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My I- understanding of things is that it's all an action without malice as well. Because there was a story from from just last week uh, from Record Store Day where he went to his record store of choice, Electric Fetus, in, in Minneapolis, and a fan pulled out her phone to snap a photo. And he was really displeased because he just wanted to like buy some Stevie Wonder CDs, apparently, and like kick it. And he yelled, security, and then it turned into like a big joke. And he was like, of course you can stay. So that makes me feel like even if he was like cease and desist posting these videos, but I love you, (laughs) that would be him. That's consciousness personified. Prince was all about his space, all about demarcating what was appropriate for people to ask from him. And he also would kind of like hold other celebrities and singers um, accountable to that. A couple of years ago, BET... At the BET Awards, Trey Songs actually did a rendition of Purple Rain that Prince was just not about, and you can just see it in his face. Like, his eyes are just, like, glowing red. But he doesn't say anything, of course, and he was able to really express um, just the fact that he didn't fuck with people who didn't rise to his level. And a lot of the people who are, you know, writing tributes to him, I don't think Prince, like, really fucked with. Prince didn't have to answer to anyone because he could do it all himself. When you're that empowered talent-wise as a musician, you're not really tethered to other institutions or to other people. You know, on his first album, For You, which I think came out in 1978, Prince plays every instrument on the album down to the wood blocks, down to the uh, tambourine. And there's not many people who, as incredibly gifted instrumentalists and then also incredibly gifted vocalists can sort of like compartmentalize themselves to be an entire band just in one body. And then also with his business savvy and acumen, um, which we've been talking about for the past couple of minutes, it's just like he's a one-stop shop. He doesn't need anybody. Um, Maybe, you know, the fact that he was able to remember that throughout his entire career is something else to be lauded. But uh, Prince just did it all. Yeah, I feel like I read all these stories. Um, a lot of the recollections people have are of Prince showing up somewhere by himself and sort of hanging out by himself in the club or, you know, at at the event. And he just he seems such a, like such a self-contained, you know, entity that 
when he did bring in collaborators, you knew that it was somebody he really respected and trusted. And the fact that so many of these collaborators were women was something I always thought was really cool because I thought, you know, here's somebody who could work with any musician in the world and the people he wants to empower are people like Sheila E. and Wendy and Lisa and songwriters who, you know, wouldn't have had that platform if he hadn't brought them into Prince World. Um, And they're so great. (laughs) The thing that I've been thinking about, and now we're going to jump from A to Q really, really quickly. So forgive me in advance, but this literally I've been thinking about this all morning, and I think something you just said really summed it up. So we're having this great conversation about how Prince could do it all himself, and he made sure that people knew it. So on that first record was for you, right? Mm -hmm. On that first record, he definitely made sure the liner notes said written, produced, played, and you know, mastered by Prince. He was very into the idea of doing everything himself. He would bring in female musicians and allow them to be the virtuosos on their instrument that may have intimidated other male band leaders. He nurtured solo female pop artists from Chaka Khan to Sinead O'Connor to Sheila E to any of the other women that he ended up working with. And he was likely, if not the most popular male artist of that generation, to talk about female pleasure and female masturbation. So this encouragement of, I can do it for me, myself, you can do it for you, yourself. I think that's a really interesting through line if you follow Prince's relationship to solo female artists. It's not that any woman necessarily needs a man to empower her, of course, but Prince empowered women the way that Prince empowered women, both musically and sexually, seemed to have a lot of overlap, I guess is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. He was concerned with women being able to manufacture their own pleasure. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think we need to complicate that a little bit because there are so many reports of that control that Prince was so married to mm-hmm. hurting women. Um, it's always tough to talk about, especially for me as a woman, to talk about a man who I lionize and just... You know, otherwise, if I wasn't as politically empowered as I am, I probably wouldn't even think to talk about it. But it's true. You know, you have stories from Maite Garcia, who was incredibly young when she started dating Prince, who was in his mid-30s, being controlled by him in ways that we wouldn't stand for in another artist. And yes, that era is, you know, it's it was a really murky time. Some of the language that we have around female agency wasn't mainstream during that time um but i think it's important to without being anachronistic to sort of like you know just address that sometimes his issues with controlling women and making him their muses were kind of like questionable like vanity originally he wanted to call vanity vagina well vagina he wanted to play with the pronunciation of Sweet, vagina. dude. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of basic. Prince, you were a genius. But that moment was just like, you, you were know. a genius in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> it was a moment of just, you know, incredibly uh, basic male artistic, you know, offering. And he, I think as much as we are looking to him as a interesting figure, that many women were able to develop their feminist or their their femininity on. He also, in many respects, was a traditional black man. 
Um, and there are guys like him in the hood everywhere. Guys who have these like freshly perm pompadours, who wear incredibly tight clothes, who dress in really bright colors, and that might read as flamboyance that you know maybe is playing with gender, and that's true. But that doesn't mean that that isn't also rooted in black masculinity in ways that are you know like classical. With with artists like Vanity, um, who I was very sad when she passed away earlier last year um, that I think sometimes he was trying to sort of build these female artists into what he felt an empowered woman should look and act like Mm -hmm. and that's such a powerful image when you encounter it at first because you think that is you know that's what vanity is like she's just like these all these women who are like the hottest woman in the world and also really smart and funny um, and wearing like an amazing corset and you know, to find to have that sort of complicated later by finding out that Vanity was sort of like not as comfortable in that position as she seemed like she was because she was so good at it and fit it so well uh, that there's definitely like a disconnect. I think sometimes between how Prince felt, you know, the perfect woman should be an act, and how those women actually felt about being that woman, um, about being so sexualized all the time. Uh, but, you know, it also, it wasn't across the board, because I feel like with, mm-hmm. with Sheila E., you know, Sheila E. never had to be in lingerie. Um, you know, she was a couple times, but it always felt very natural there to me, because also, you know, she was drumming. So you were never sort of, you never forgot that what she was first and foremost was a musician. Yeah, I agree. Of course. I think the point is just to say that prints contained multitudes. Um, and sometimes they were contradictory, but it, it's like it's not necessarily to indict him, which I think can be kind of like the mode of feminist criticism um, in 2016. It's to go back and say, ha, like these things don't conform to the standards that we've created in this vacuum, this political vacuum that is the Internet. Whereas, you know, there are so many other factors to consider, like who was paying female artists in the late 70s, early 80s? Not a lot of people. So maybe just that check was enough to be like, all right, like I'm going to do this thing that I don't feel 100% cool with. You know, I do things that I don't feel 100% cool with all the time because there are so many other um, reasons to create. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that he had such long relationships with some of these people, um, just with collaborators in general, was something that always impressed impressed me because you know as somebody who is so self-contained um just you know when I saw him in LA once he brought uh you know he had Morris Day Mm. and Sheila E and I just thought like oh he's still friends with Morris Day and Sheila E (laughs) you know and this is somebody who's known for being sort of like you know will dismiss you if you're not up to up to par um but he obviously was capable of having relationships long fruitful collaborative relationships with people that he really respected and um yeah I just keep coming back to Sheila E because you know that was probably the first example of a a famous female drummer that I ever saw I just thought that was so cool and then when I found out that Prince was you know involved I thought oh of course you know Prince is the person who would make this happen, would make this person a star because the music the music business was not going to make somebody like that a star necessarily. And I, don't, I don't think the music business was set up to make Prince a star, you know? He was just so unbelievably talented in every possible way. It was like impossible for, for the world to ignore. 
That was Molly Lambert, Meredith Graves, and Doreen St. Felix. Not only was Prince a prolific musician, he also tried his hand at acting and directing with films like Purple Rain, Graffiti Bridge, Under the Cherry Moon, and Sign of the Times. Chief film critic Amy Nicholson talks to pop culture writer Teo Bugby about Prince's movies. So how would you like to kind of start this out in terms of discussing Prince? I mean, Prince movies are such a, I don't know, there are only a few of them, but there's so much to talk about. Totally. It's kind of just like being submerged in Prince world for, I don't know, you have like three different chapters that are all the same chapter of the the same same yeah. universe. The Prince extended yeah. cinematic universe. What is the Marvel thing? Never mind. I don't want to be reminded. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would want to be DC just because of Batman. You're right. You're right. Very right. The first one I ever saw was Purple Rain. And I saw Purple Rain in a, in a very specific way. <laughs> where I went to a friend's house, she had it on VHS, and she popped it into a VHS player. And what was kind of great about this moment is it was actually way after we should have been using VHS, but that was how she owned it, and that was how she <laughs> wanted to watch it. And we sat there. I what would be way after campaign? you should have watched it on VHS? When did VHS die? <laughs> Um, I would say VHS officially died probably around 2004. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it was dying since like 1997. Um, but my friend was one of those friends who had like the whole wall of VHS tapes she's loved ever since a child. And Purple Rain was just primal among them. I should say she's from Minnesota. And oh, so okay. Prince was her person. It, I, what about you? When did you catch up? Uh, I, it's probably less interesting because it was almost definitely on VH1 or MTV when it would play. And so I, I watched it with commercials. I think this last time might have been the first time that I saw Purple Rain. This last time of watching it like on Amazon Video was probably the first time I saw Purple Rain with the sex scenes because they cut them out on TV. So I don't think I've actually they seen the whole... They cut them out on TV? I want to say they maybe do. I don't, Or maybe it was like I was young enough that my parents like took me out of the room or like did something. But yeah, I don't think I saw like the full Purple Rain, got the full experience until this last time. Yeah, I mean that... The, that first sex scene in Purple Rain between Prince and Apollonia is crazy because when you watch what his <laughs> hand is doing, yeah, she's I'm an pretty instrument. sure at least his pinky, <laughs> yeah, I think his under, I think his hand goes inside her panties. Like I am very certain that his like pinky fingers go inside her panties, which is crazy the 80s because were, like the 80s were a better time, you know. <laughs> I was surprised she didn't punch him or David Lee Roth. Apollonia was dating David Lee Roth oh, while they right. made Purple Rain. That's right. I, I forgot about murdered that. murdered him. <laughs> well, didn't they date afterwards? I don't think so. I think she was always complaining that people thought they dated. Oh, But okay. who knows? I mean, back yeah. then, I don't know if I trust anybody's word on who they did and did not date. Certainly who Whatever it is did and should... didn't date Prince. Yeah, I mean, everybody did. Kim Basinger, like, famously did when Prince was working on Batman. Right, yeah. I mean, how could you say no? <laughs> I love the Prince and Apollonia whole relationship in that film. For it being, I think it took me maybe an hour into it to realize that, like, what was so watchable about it is that you're watching kind of, instead of it being sort of a traditional, like, male-female, it's like they're two of the same thing <laughs> like the gender boundary is so it's so permeable between like who is doing what he's he's like looking up through his eyelashes at all times it's like mesmerizing I don't know I love it yeah it's fascinating I, I almost want to take back what I just said about like how would you say no to Prince because watching Purple Rain and Graffiti Bridge and Under the Cherry Moon again this weekend 
Oh, yeah, wait, 100%. I would want to say no to Prince because he's kind of <laughs> horrible to his girlfriends in all of these movies. He's really the worst. I mean, I, I love that you're bringing up this idea of him messing with gender dynamics and who's like the more seductive one in the Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, he's. it's funny because he's the seductress in a way. You know, you don't really see, like, all of the codes of the way that he's moving his body and the way that he's positioned in the frame are all the sort of things that you would expect the Apollonia to be doing, but they're not. It's, it's not Apollonia, it's Prince. Prince is, like, both Prince and the Apollonia in his own movie. It's so great. He is. I mean, he uses his eyes exactly like... Like he's a silent movie star, you know. Oh, he's just totally. looking up and around at her. In that first scene where he can, where he meets Apollonia, sort of with like an asterisk on it in Purple Rain, she's the one who feels like she's obligated to talk to him. Yeah. Well, and in Graffiti Bridge, he barely talks at all. I think that might be on purpose. I'm starting to wonder. Yeah. Or, or like even even in Cherry Moon when he first meets Kristen Scott Thomas, she's all crazy with crazy hair, totally undone, like naked basically, and he's in this full outfit with like retro flapper girl finger waves. I mean, it's completely the inverse of how they should look. Yeah, I know. I think it took me maybe an hour and 15 minutes into Under the Cherry Moon to realize that it wasn't set in the 30s and that Prince hadn't made a movie that was just set in the 30s except for him. <laughs> like, I mean, he's he's such a visionary that these films, you kind of have to watch them both completely dead seriously and 100% not seriously at all at the same time because you're so immersed in Prince land that it's both ridiculous and like magical. I love it. It's such a it's such a deep dive into how he sees the world in simultaneously the most ridiculous but also the most true way. Well, yeah, like these worlds might look ridiculous to us. You know, the idea that people would wake up in the morning and wear insanely ruffled shirts and spend an hour getting their hair done. But that actually was Prince's life. Yeah, you know, completely. He did wear whatever he wanted all day, every day. He did dress up for every occasion. His whole life was like going to huge events and huge parties where people looked fantastic. So like what looks insane to us, to him was his real life, which I find so interesting. And this idea that He's almost like an art house experimental director. You oh, know, totally. Like, what I love about music videos is they're like in that line between telling a story without having to tell it in a traditional way. And so with movies, he's just doing that same non-traditional storytelling that's all about mood and atmosphere uh, in, in a way that frees him from normal structures like plot. He's It's weirdly avant-garde, although I mean, I'm saying this with all the caveat that is... Movies aren't great, but they're fascinating. They're fascinating, which is, for me, the same thing as great. Like, I would rather watch a fascinating movie than a movie that's, like, good, but not actually interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, these worlds are so crazy artificial that there's a scene in Graffiti Bridge where Morris Day pees on a plant and then is able to set it on fire. Like, his urine is flammable. <laughs> like, he actually pees gasoline. I mean, that's the insane world we're living in. But when we talk about these crazy fantasy worlds, it always makes me imagine Prince as, like, a 15-year-old boy oh, growing up in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis in a weird time, like Minneapolis in the early 70s, and how nobody would look at a kid who lived in Minneapolis who was 15 years old and be like, oh, you're going to you're going to break down boundaries. Yeah. You're going to explore the world. Because Minneapolis is, I love, I love Minneapolis. It is great. But Minneapolis is not a place where you walk down the street and see people like Prince. And so he created himself. He made this fantasy image of who he wanted to be, which is why I love that when you look at his movies, you just see signs of that. I mean, the very beginning starts of the, the start of Purple Rain is basically a movie where you watch people posing and moving for others. It's about creating performance, creating a character. Like, you watch him get dressed up and you think, 
he created he created the whole concept of Prince when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And now we watch all these people create their own crazy 80s party looks based on the fact that he told you you could do anything you want. Well, and too, in Purple Rain, like the emotional low point of that film is his I think it's like the the club owner telling him that no one under no one but him understands his music and there's such a a sense of how devastating that is that you have a vision of yourself that only you can see you know and there's a threat of that I think in all of his films that comes through in um, Under the Cherry Moon with Kristen Scott Thomas's character that sense of like I'm magnificent you know, this is who I am. What I am is this complete fantasy creature. And you have, like, if you don't accept it, then what what kind of world am I living in, you know? Exactly. Like, what's fascinating about him, you know, A, exactly like what you said, his recurring nightmare seems to be that nobody gets him. You know, yeah. like in Graffiti Bridge, that's this huge part that his music is even, it's harder here because his music is evolving. His music during the Graffiti Bridge part of his career isn't as good as the stuff in Purple Rain. And that whole panic of the film is like, I'm going to show you I'm good, but it's not as good. And everybody sort of knows it. And you worry if he knows it. But what I find so interesting is like, yeah, he's not a great actor, but whenever he sings in Purple Rain and when he sings in Graffiti Bridge, you know, what it takes to be a great actor is like control of your image, presence, delivering a line like you mean it. And he's able to do all of those things when he sings more so than he is when he's acting. You, like there's that scene that I love in Purple Rain where he's on stage and he's singing, you know, I gotta know, I gotta know, do you want me? And he's pointing at himself and he's like so passionate and serious in that moment that if he did that exact same line in front of a woman, I would I would buy it in the film yeah. if he was acting. But he's just better at doing it with a microphone. Well, it's like he has a as a as a human being seemingly has a sense for performance that makes ordinary interaction awkward you know what I mean like how do you perform being normal like how do you perform like a normal conversation if what you're constantly creating is this extraordinary extraordinary vision of of a different kind of humanity you know every time Prince tries to act like a normal person in a scene that doesn't have singing in it and he's just trying to like win a girl over he reverts to being a child to like a time when he was basically pre-fame yeah like he signs notes with hearts he like asks people through hangman if they like him yeah and when they don't he pouts (laughs) yeah oh it's also really immature too it's like part of him seems like it froze at this childlike era yeah you know, like he, like he doesn't know how to relate as a grown-up. Like he stopped. I don't. I'm fascinated like, that you see this guy who'd stop maturing in some sort of a way if he couldn't get somebody just by his presence and staring at them. He acts like that kind of mean guy who pulls your hair in school. Yeah, I don't know if it's stop maturing necessarily so much as he's so he's such like a classic kind of Byron-esque romantic where. I mean, the, the line between being in a child state and being completely devastating and devastatingly in love with someone is like a permeable line. And so he, he kind of, it's like he's so romantic, he's like completely powerless to these like magnificent women that he's so attracted to and drawn to in all of these films. Uh, see, I don't know if I can go there, because like what's so strange about these movies is... You were talking about Prince as this guy who was both the male and the female role when he's seducing somebody. But then at the same time, both of these, especially Purple Rain and Graffiti Bridge, have such like old school looks of how men and women are supposed to behave around each other. I mean, in both of these movies, Prince tells the girl he's dating to not have a job. 
and that her job should be like taking care of him and making him look good and what's crazy is in both of these movies especially purple rain he gets his way yeah he does you know apollonia is like i want to date him and morris day who i love morris day in these movies i think morris day is like the mvp he's so funny and he's so, so good yeah completely morris day could have so been good. in like a like a john landis movie or something oh totally but like morris day straight up tells apollonia in purple rain he's really selfish and he's not gonna help you and she's yeah. like no he's not but at the end of the movie she's stuck in the audience cheering for him and he doesn't care and she never gets to be back on stage yeah it, it, it's it, it it is weirdly paternalistic you know i i like how purple rain directly like has him fighting with this idea of am i gonna be like my dad am i gonna be domineering and then it turns out when you watch the sequel graffiti bridge six years later yeah he's still telling women don't be a waitress at my rival's club i'll break up with you it means you don't care about me yeah it is he did he didn't really have a happy ending in a way graffiti bridge too it should be said like the woman the female character exists only to serve his arc you know she she literally dies at the end to like make it possible for his music to live um and she she's like an angel maybe graffiti bridge is wild honestly like beginning to end there's so much strange stuff going on in that movie i i don't necessarily know that that's something that's resolvable and i feel like that tension between power and powerlessness is one of the things that makes these movies so watchable even if it doesn't make them super comfortable at all times like it's i i like that there's it feels real even while being awkwardly performed and being you know um amateurish in a way they're like the core of what's going on in those relationships uh has something to it that's complicated and kind of dark and interesting and that you wouldn't necessarily see from another artist who was more concerned with portraying themselves as like a traditional hero yeah i mean i'd rather see him like wrestling with it in plain sight being like here's what's inside of me here's what i learned about the way men and women should treat each other and i don't want to be like this and i'm fighting it and i that i i like that he does that so openly in purple rain it makes it a lot easier to try to deal with the tough parts i mean that's brave to be one of the biggest stars in the world and then shoot a movie where you're beating up women yeah you don't do that nobody does that like a lot of people you know most movie stars who maybe are also horrible in their private lives or worse make themselves always the romantic hero and the fact that he's able to look at that directly is is amazing but then it gets strange when he does the same thing in graffiti bridge and at the end he's like literally this crucified jesus figure carried through the street the streets (laughs) who's going to save everybody with his spirituality and you're like you're He's kind of sometimes the villain to me in Graffiti Bridge, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm Team Morris Day a lot of the time. The stuff they have to make Morris Day do so I don't like Morris Day <laughs> is really extreme. They basically have to make Morris Day a rapist so I don't side with Morris Day. Amy, what would you say is the weirdest moment in one of these movies? Oh, man, this is... I'm, like, nervous to even talk about this one moment in Under the Cherry Moon because I, I find it so weird. You know, Cherry Moon is kind of like the weird asterisk in all of these because it's the one film where he played a character named Christopher. He's not playing basically himself as the kid. He's, mm-hmm. like, not in his own town of Minneapolis. He's all the way across the world. He's in he's in Nice, France. And it's the one thing where he's not, like, necessarily the powerful one because he's romancing this woman who's going to inherit, like, $50 million or $50 billion yeah. or a quintillion <laughs> dollars, like an impossible amount of money. And so he's, like, on the lower end of the financial spectrum, and he's trying to join her world. Like he, 
in in Purple Rain and Graffiti Bridge, he's like the king of his worlds, and then in Cherry Moon, he's like this interloper from Miami, like invading high society of France, which gives it this really fascinating dynamic. And so, what's so weird to me about that movie, like the scene that just the you know, I only recently saw this movie for the first time, and when I watched it, I was like, whoa! Is when he's with Kristen Scott Thomas, he he tells her in the car that you know she's an ice queen and he's going to bone her so hard and these are his words that she's going to quote get black and then he starts doing this thing where he imitates her imitating a black person and it doesn't even it, it's so extreme and i've never seen prince confront like race like that and like racial dynamics in any of these films you know it's kind of it's sort of well it, it's a, it's a really strange movie it like that's moment i almost don't even have words for it because i I think under you don't the cherry see moon, that. yeah. I think under the cherry moon is actually my favorite of these films, partly for that reason. Um, I think this film functions as kind of an intervention into basically Hollywood history, Hollywood's history of excluding black performers from even roles in which black performers would be suited to. He takes takes out whoever the white star is and then kind of reimagines it as if as if those films had included race from the beginning i mean there's also that great scene where uh they make kristen scott thomas say record store but it's recasto and she keeps saying it and they keep laughing at her and there there are so many ways in which that feels like Prince as a black man kind of confronting the medium's history in which he's working and making fun of it and making light of it and well yeah like you know there's one step of reimagining Hollywood history where he puts himself in that Cary Grant role and it just is not an issue he just says look I can do this role too and then there's his version of it in Under the Cherry Moon where he has scenes where you know Kristen Scott Thomas shows up at his door and he's like he introduces her to like what a do rag is. He's like, this is my soul, and you. He actually, you know, talks about it. Mm-hmm. And I think what's so striking about that is Prince really didn't talk about it much. I mean, even the New York Times this weekend referred to him as biracial, which he technically wasn't. No, but he, he just but didn't he talk wasn't. about it ever. Yeah, but I think that that's he wasn't. like. A... But he like left that door open for people to wonder because he had parents who were black and white in the movie Purple Rain, and he was so vague about it because it wasn't that. Folk, he, it wasn't what he wanted to make the the focus of his music on that even the New York Times wasn't sure and I think that's fascinating but then at the same time there is so much in Purple Rain that skates that close to truth that you wonder I mean his dad was a musician yeah. and all of that tension in his band is real you know those scenes where Wendy and Lucy are like we feel like you don't care about our input in this band are, are dead on because they didn't and someone tells them you know we don't think this is going to last much longer and it doesn't they're, in, they're with Prince for another two years and then he fires them Mm-hmm. And and you know all the tension between him and Morris Day in the time playing Morris Day playing like him his own self, you know feeling like he was under Prince's thumb. It's it's strange. Like he deliberately is skirting so close to the truth, yeah. and then veering away from it. That you know, I mean, even though he didn't technically write the film, and even though he didn't technically direct it, it was this guy. It was Albert Mag- Magnoli who then went on to do movies like Tango and Cash, which is fascinating. Yeah. You feel his fingerprint all over it. You know, he was not a guy who was ever going to do something that didn't feel true to him. Even on Under the Cherry Moon, he, he like, took over the direction in the middle of that film because he couldn't, he couldn't sit back. 
Exactly. He took it over from Mary Lambert, who quit because basically Prince was being so annoying with yeah. what he wanted to do <laughs> that he that she was just like, well, fine, you do it yourself. You know, and Mary Lambert is a big deal. Like Mary Lambert, who was supposed to do Cherry Moon, is the person who directed videos like Material Girl and Like a Prayer for Madonna. Like this is a woman who also knew how to create an icon. Mm-hmm. But he was like, I got this. I got this. Mary Lambert, go away. Yeah, I love that he had to um, like wind up. I think that film, a lot of the takes that make it in the film were one takes because he just ran out of money and time and for what he wanted to do like wasn't possible he had such a large vision for it yeah well he just believed in one takes too like I think he was a guy who knew so much of what he wanted to do that he knew that when he got on stage he didn't need like 10 takes or 20 takes like more normal people do what I love about Purple Rain at the end is you see that where he's doing that huge famous rendition of Purple Rain Halfway through it, one of the buttons on his blouse gets unbuttoned. Like the un- it's like the second button on his neck. And you know that nobody was like, oh, fix it and take it again. He was like, we're just going to go with it. Yeah. And like his button never gets fixed. And he's fine with that because the performance was there. What I think you walk away with when you watch all these Prince movies is that he was just a singular vision. And maybe you didn't like that vision, but you need to recognize that vision and be fascinated by it. Because there's literally nothing like these three movies together. Yeah, completely. He's so he's I mean, he was completely singular in everything that he did. It was like he didn't know how to be like other people. So why would he try? That was Amy Nicholson and Teo Bugbee. For all of our coverage on Prince's life and legacy, visit mtvnews.com. This is part two of our Prince podcast special. Subscribe to MTV podcasts on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.